from KQED. From KQED Public Radio in San Francisco, I'm Mina Kim. Coming up on Forum, excitement and anticipation are building in the Biden camp as the vote count in Pennsylvania continues to extend the former vice president's lead over President Trump. Georgia and Pennsylvania moved into the Biden column early this morning, where he holds a very small margin in an election that saw a record number of total votes cast, including more for Trump than he won in 2016. We get the latest on the vote count and how young voters and women of color helped boost the Biden-Harris campaign and what this election tells us about America. This is Forum. I'm Nina Kim. President Trump continues to show no signs of accepting that his path to re-election is narrowing significantly as the vote count comes in from states like Nevada, Pennsylvania, and Georgia. In this hour, we get the latest on the election and what it is showing us about the America that Joe Biden and Kamala Harris, the first woman in black and Asian American vice presidential candidate, appear increasingly poised to lead. Joining me is Amy Allison, founder of She the People, an organization elevating the political voice of women of color. Thanks so much for joining us, Amy Allison. My pleasure. Thanks for having me. Also with us, Marisa Lagos, politics correspondent for KQED and co-host of KQED's Political Breakdown Show. Marisa, thanks for being here, too. Morning, Mina. Also with us is Philip Bump, national correspondent for The Washington Post. Hello, Philip Bump. Uh, good afternoon. How are you? I'm well. <laughs> it's actually morning for us, but I'm sure oh, afternoon where enough, you enough. are. Yeah. And I'm sure a very long night as well. Very early this morning, we know that President Trump claimed that if certain ballots that he called illegal were discounted from the national total, that he would be winning the election right now, that he would have won. We know this claim, Philip Bump, is baseless. But can you tell us about what you're hearing in terms of whether it's doing the job? that he is seeking, which is to cast doubt on what appears to be his defeat. Well, it certainly is the case that he is uh, casting doubt. I'm not sure if those who have, uh, you know, expressed more doubt over the past 48 hours weren't already supporters of President Trump. It seems pretty clear that he hasn't been able to convince any state officials, all of whom reject the idea there's been fraud, uh, or any courts, any judges, uh, you know, in the various lawsuits that have been attempted by the campaign, most of them have been dismissed out of hand or don't really address fraud at all anyway. So yeah, I mean, it certainly is the case that he is trying to whip up this uh, sort of hurricane of misinformation and suspicion around the votes. And I think it's catching uh, to some extent in conservative media and among his base. But more broadly than that, the votes just sort of moving forward and, and the results seem increasingly clear. So what is the Republican strategy here? And I'm talking about a few different things. One is Trump's campaign, but also Republican leaders uh, in the in Congress. That that latter one, honestly, is a harder question to answer. Uh, the strategy for Trump and his campaign is pretty straightforward, and that is simply do whatever we possibly can to try and see if something happens, right? I mean, it's very much a throw spaghetti at the wall sort of response. Uh, it doesn't seem to be particularly coordinated. It changes you know, every day, uh, and it, it doesn't seem to be terribly effective. Now, for Republican elected officials, it is for the past 
four or five years, they have been sort of sitting on the edge of this bubble of, of uh, misinformation and surreality that surrounds President Trump, the MAGAverse, if you will. And, you know, occasionally dipping into it when they want to appeal to his base, mostly trying to stay outside of it. You know, Fox News plays that same sort of overlap. It's heavily in MAGAverse, but then it tries to be outside of it and be objective. Uh, and this is really a moment in which Republican elected officials have to decide, like, where are they standing? Are they standing outside of that bubble in reality with, you know, the vote is going forward? It looks like Joe Biden is almost certainly going to be the president-elect. Or do they immerse themselves more fully in the allegations that President Trump is making? We've seen people like Senator uh, Lindsey Graham Senator Ted Cruz appear last night on Fox News and seemed to sort of embrace this, the, the, the President Trump's claims, uh, baseless as, the, as though, baseless though they are. Uh, and I'm not sure what the long-term repercussions of that are. Yes. At the same time, you have heard a little bit here and there, for example, on CNN, Rick Santorum was basically saying that he thought that no Republican would stand by, you know, Trump's comments, especially from last night, trying to say that the election is rigged and, and essentially shredding democracy for his personal gain here. But yet at the same time, um, as you say, hours later, we then did see Lindsey Graham go on Hannity and say what he said in terms of supporting the defense fund and so on. But uh, Marisa Lagos, what we also heard were Trump's legal advisors yesterday saying that they're wanting the Supreme Court to step in. I mean, pretty incredible move. Marisa Lagos, are you there? Yeah. Uh, can you hear me again? I can. Yes. Okay. Yeah. And I mean, I think it's important to note here in California, um, Kevin McCarty, the House Min Minority Leader, um, you know, who obviously had, had his eyes on the speakership, um, has been standing by Trump as well. And, and, and I do think that we're seeing, um, you know, Mitt Romney and a couple other Republicans speak out, but, but really the, largely the Republican party just staying silent, if not, you know, doing what Lindsey Graham and others have done and support him. Um, I'm sorry, what was the other question you had? Well, just about the Supreme Court. I mean, the fact that right now, <laughs> there are some legal advisors of Trump who are trying to suggest that the Supreme Court and the courts really need to step in here. But do they even have an argument? I mean, it's also just it's a really brazen move. Well, it's I mean, I think you have to look at some of that in the context of what are they trying to do? Is it really a legal argument or a political argument? And I think right. it's a political argument, because the truth is, if you have a case, you should take it to court, right? And we have seen some suits filed in different, these various swing states, some have been thrown out, some are proceeding, there could be questions, there could be ballots, you know, thrown out. But to say that there was widespread fraud, and that the Supreme Court needs to bring it up, I mean, you need to show the proof and you need to show in this incredibly diverse nation where we have not only only states that run elections, but counties that really have so much power over, you know, the the nitty gritty of, of vote counting and, and and ballots being cast at all. Where, how, like, what is the conspiracy? It's just not been identified. And I think that um, what we're seeing, you know, is, is some desperation on on that regard. Um, you know, again, nobody, I don't think on no matter what their politics has said that if there are concerns about any jurisdiction or the way things have been counted, that they shouldn't be brought to light. But that's just not what we're hearing. We're hearing sort of baseless allegations. It, it feels very much like the Trump campaign is trying to just throw anything against the wall and hope that something might stick.
Well, our listeners are starting to already weigh in online, and you can join the conversation by uh, getting in touch with us on Twitter or Facebook at KQED Forum or emailing us at forum at kqed.org. And of course, as always, 866-733-6786 is the number to call if you want to call by phone, 866-733-6786. I mean, Philip Bump, Matt writes, I think the crescendo of Trump's presidency is going to be him calling for people to take to the streets and for the citizens' arrest of politicians, etc. I recently stocked up on guns and ammo because it seems like it's heading in that direction. It's a very scary time. I'm nervous and exhausted. I mean, Philip Bump, we already know that some supporters have shown up at election centers with weapons. There was apparently an incident uh, last night in Philadelphia where a group of folks came up from Virginia, apparently with the intent of trying to stop the vote counting. Uh, We've seen in Arizona that there have been people who have been armed with long rifles who've uh, stood outside of vote processing centers. Uh, And it is very disconcerting. I think it's important to remember that these are very small numbers of people, particularly relative to the population of the country. Uh, I think that, you know, I think everyone probably has that same sense of nervousness about where this goes next. Uh, I think the real question is how desperate does President Trump get to uh, toward holding power? Uh, I think he has real personal motivations for trying to ensure he has a second term, namely that I think he understands that there may be uh, criminal investigations that proceed at the state level or even federally uh, from which he is inured if he remains in office. I think that's probably some something of a motivating factor for him. Uh, but I also think it's important to remember this is, you know, this is hopefully the peak moment. I think we're going to see a call for Joe Biden fairly soon here, which will resolve that aspect of it, uh, that, you know, we may be at the moment of peak tension now. Let's hope that we are uh, and that this fades. We can't take that for granted. Uh, but it's important to remember that these are, we're talking about small numbers of people who are potentially poised to do the worst case thing. And hopefully that number gets smaller instead of larger. Uh, Philip Bump, I know you need to leave us at the break. What, if anything, are you hearing from the Biden campaign and their plans? As you say, it looks like a call in the election could be imminent. I mean, is imminent. Right. Uh, so this evening, uh, the former vice president is slotted to address the nation. My guess is uh, that assuming the calls come in before then, he'll he'll you know sort of move forward with his new position as president-elect. Uh, they have been, for understandable reasons, very uh, uh, cautious about their approach to this, both in terms of standing in contrast to President Trump's you know, claims that he won, uh, but also recognizing that it's a tense moment and not wanting to exacerbate tensions. Uh, and I think they've done a fairly good job of that, of keeping a relatively low profile as the votes are counted. Um, you know, but again, that there is going to come a moment in the next few hours slash 24 hours in which this race becomes finalized and, and it's not clear what happens at that point. Hopefully that leads to a, you know, a denouement of what, you know, all of the tension that's been going on, but it's hard to say. And well, let me just see if I can just quickly take a call from Nick in Menlo Park. Hi, Nick. Hi, thank you very much for taking my call. I was, I'm deeply saddened and concerned about the fact that Lindsey Graham has now, you know, spoken up saying in support of Trump's uh, rhetoric around doubting the election results. And I'm wondering, what can organizations like the Lincoln Project do to get a prominent Republican, Bush would be wonderful, to make a primetime speech to the American public and to Trump's base. 
about how democracy works. That this is what we do. We count every vote. Nick, thanks. Philip Bump. The problem is that the only voice of authority that Donald Trump's base is going to listen to is Donald Trump. Uh, you know, they, Donald Trump ran against George W. Bush. He's not going to convince people who are fervent supporters of President Trump, who take him at his word that this fraud is occurring, that the election is being stolen from him. Uh, you know, again, we should hasten to add that there's absolutely no evidence of this. They're not going to care what George W. Bush says. They're going to say he's part of the deep state. He's part of the establishment, yada, yada, yada. Donald Trump at some point needs to acknowledge reality of what is happening in this race. Until he does that, then we're going to be in the position that we're in now. You know, maybe it is the case that his support will sort of wither and fade a bit over time as it becomes obvious that that he lost the race, which seems likely. Uh, but, you know, until Donald Trump either says, okay, I, I get it, I lost, or until, you know, we just sort of have to wait until his supporters come to that realization on their own. I don't think anything's going to change the dynamic much. Philip Bump, I know you've been covering politics a long time. <laughs> what can you leave us with in terms of how you think our listeners should try to put this election in perspective? Well, I think that for all of the tension and, you know, this has been the worst year that any of us have experienced, right? It's been a terrible, horrible year with the pandemic, with all of this tension, with, you know, these acts of violence that occurred over the course of the year. Like, it's been a bad year. Uh, but this election has actually been pretty calm, like the election itself, right? We had the mail-in votes and it proceeded as normal. We had election day. There wasn't any real, you know, push for tension or, you know, there weren't incidents there. The states are counting despite all this pressure from the president. It's all moved forward. And, you know, there is a non-zero chance, probably a large chance that we'll move forward and we'll just have a normal transition after we get through all the Michigas of whatever Donald Trump wants to put us through. Philip Bump, national correspondent for The Washington Post. More after the break. I'm Mina Kim. This is Forum. I'm Mina Kim. We're talking about the ongoing vote count in the presidential election and Biden's growing vote count. Also, the impact of voters and how we got to this point. We're talking with Marisa Lagos, politics correspondent at KQED and co-host of KQED's Political Breakdown, and Amy Allison, founder of She the People. And Amy Allison, I want to talk to you specifically about that. I mean, we know that this election has seen the highest voter turnout. And, uh, you know, we've got like 74 million votes for uh, Joe Biden, 69, almost 70 million votes for President Trump as of this moment. And I was wondering if you could just talk to us about what has happened in these states, especially the close ones like Georgia and Pennsylvania, where it really does appear that voters of color, and in particular women of color, have really made a difference. Well, yeah, because you've you've got to understand this election and what has what is possible today, the road to the White House and actually the road to the Senate uh, has been uh, paved with women of color. Uh, I've said uh, many times, and I think it's bearing uh, fruit now, that the hard work that women of color uh, in states that are battleground states, uh, Georgia uh, and Arizona and uh, Pennsylvania in particular, the, the ones that we're focused on right now, have for years been focused on year-round voter registration, engagement, supporting local candidates that uh, advocate for uh, racial and uh, economic justice on the ground and are really behind the winds. I think it's no mistake that you know Trump's political career started 
with racer, racist birtherism uh, had been challenged. Most, most women of color voted against him in 2016. We deepened and expanded that uh, to historic levels where women of color turnout uh, in battleground states is up more than 69%. And because we're the most loyal Democrats, uh, we are the margin. Um, and uh, we've come through in, as you've seen the results come through in um, uh, uh, Pittsburgh and in Philadelphia, in uh, places like uh, Phoenix, and then Atlanta and the surrounding areas. Uh, when we look at the numbers, it's Black, Asian American, and Latinas who uh, voted for uh, voted for the Biden-Harris ticket and are the reason that these battleground um, states are, are turning blue. So this is a moment um, in the country, uh, despite the earlier prognications about, oh, this is a disappointing moment. This is an amazing moment for the Democratic Party because you see the rise uh, leadership uh, of uh, the organizers. And this is a moment to thank Stacey Abrams, her long held vision about assembling a multiracial coalition and then dedicating and really digging in to defending the right to vote, fighting against voter suppression in the places that will make a difference. So this is the way forward for the Democrats, and this will be the way that the Democrats still have a shot uh, to have a governing majority in the Senate. A very exciting um, and monumental day for all these reasons today. And, you know, when you talk about how black women in particular have been the most loyal Democratic supporters, I mean, for anyone who wants to think that this was new this year, I mean, this has been a feature of elections in years past. Can you just talk about the consistency with which black women show up? Yeah, black women are the most loyal Democrats and hadn't been acknowledged, uh, really taken for granted by the Democratic establishment. And when I say that, it means we got to follow the money a billion and a half dollars raised and spent in a typical election cycle and a very small percentage dedicated to what we know works, what uh, Stacey Abrams and Insay Ufad and the organizers in Georgia already have proven, are proving, proven worked, which is a long-term investment in the organizations on the ground that are led by uh, black and, and, and uh, black women and other women of color. Uh, black women um, are stepping into a new role nationally as uh, not only just the backbone of the Democratic Party vote, the margin of victory in um, many of the states that we're looking at, uh, certainly Michigan and Detroit, um, uh, Philadelphia, as I mentioned, and in Georgia, uh, Latina women have stepped up and organizers and voters delivered uh, both Nevada and Arizona. So we, we see uh, Latinas. And I, I, I think that uh, Black women are gonna play an essential role for Democrats assembling a multiracial coalition that includes everyone. I think if this election tells us anything, it was it was less about red versus blue and more about a referendum on white supremacy and racism. We see a clear line there. We see women of color leading uh, a multiracial coalition that is sharing values and um, leading us forward. And I cannot, um, uh, ignore the role of Asian American women in a state like Pennsylvania. When we looked at uh, early vote numbers, black women in early vote turned out at 8% higher uh, than other voters. Asian American and Pacific Islander women voted at 22% higher rate. And we can um, credit uh, local elected officials like Helen Gim, who's on yes. the Philadelphia City Council, 
who uh, is an immigrant rights activist, very active in working in a multiracial way to secure votes. So all across the board, women of color have delivered, delivered in battleground states and really have um, created a playbook moving forward. And I, absolutely. And I remember when we were doing our show on Asian American voters, Pennsylvania was the one to watch for Asian American voters to be decisive. And Marisa Lagos, also, what role do you think Harris's background as the first black and Asian American woman on the ticket as vice president played in that? I mean, I think for, uh, for people of color broadly, I, I think um, especially progressives that her, you know, choosing her was huge. Um, it really motivated a lot of the grassroots donations. We saw just incredible, you know, fundraising halls for the Biden campaign in the hours after he chose her and then after her debate with Vice President Mike Pence. Um, and I think absolutely it activated some people. But I think Amy's right, too. I mean, look, this this election was a lot more of a referendum on Trump than it was, um, I think, you know, about the Biden-Harris ticket in many ways. And I think that when you look at the fact, you know, who Democrats chose that they ended up with Biden after that huge, crowded, um, sort of messy field we saw in the primary, that 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 you know that there there was the sense that they wanted the safe choice um you know there's some kind of monday morning quarterbacking going on now around questions about how well trump did with say uh, cubans in florida or um some other minority groups and whether having someone like harris might have hurt Biden in those situations. But my guess is stepping back and looking at the broad numbers and the trends um, that really Kamala Harris's place on that ticket was way more of a help than a hindrance. Um, but and I think this is something Amy can talk to. I do think that there are a lot of folks in the Democratic Party who are disappointed with some of the numbers around, um, you know, some groups of Latino voters, um, black men going higher for Trump. I mean, look, overwhelmingly, who delivered the votes for Trump were white men. Um, but and, and, and I and I think I've been thinking a lot about how we talk about, you know, sort of voting blocks and how we tend to characterize people of color in very different ways than we do the historic white majority in this country. But um, I, I do think that talking Talking to folks who are close to Kamala Harris, that there's a sense that they are disappointed with some of those numbers, especially among black men and Latino men, and that they want to think about ways that they can do better um, in, in, in thinking about how to talk to those groups in a more effective manner. And to that point, Amy Allison, I mean, we know that the president really racked up a huge turnout among white people, particularly non-college educated white people, and also that maybe the break in the suburbs, while it was big to some degree and, and mostly women, that it wasn't the huge slide that uh, some of the polls were suggesting. I, 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 I want to push back on characterizing uh, overwhelming support for Trump amongst groups of color where if you oh, look at that. oh no 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 that's not I, what I, she I, said. I, 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 listen listen <laughs> we we called for a woman of color on the presidential ticket we got kamala harris we uh knew from talking to women of color in battleground states that it would uh her presence on the ticket would energize women of color and we've seen historic turnout uh the reason that trump got 70 million votes was largely white voters both men and women 70 million so this is a larger and bigger problem um, however, when you look at the turnout of black men or turnout of the Latinx community, both men and women, it is still overwhelmingly Absolutely. that they voted for Biden and Harris. So um, what what I hear a lot and I've heard when watching cable news is 
uh, slicing and dicing the white electorate, college educated, or this person's mm -hmm. married, or this person, and without the kind of nuance to understand uh, other voting blocks. Uh, black voters are not um, a monolith. Uh, Latinx voters, there's a difference between a Cuban in Florida and, and Mexican-Americans. Or If you have a Mexican-American overwhelmingly carrying the Biden-Harris vote in a place like Arizona or Nevada. Yeah. So I want us to be honest about uh, what is happening in the electorate and who's actually holding up the Democratic Party vote. In no way, despite what I'm hearing um, uh, from some people that are especially moderate uh, forces within the Democratic Party trying to uh, characterize uh, a move to push for economic and racial justice issues um, as a bad thing, it's actually the, th the very thing that motivates the core group of voters, women of color. And this is our moment to claim that. So for black women and other women of color who uh, are the most progressive on the, not everyone, but most progressive on the political spectrum, we don't want to see a march back to mediocre politics that do not win. That's the old playbook. The one that puts things in play, that, uh, that gives us a possibility to win, may not, maybe not every time, but certainly we saw in Arizona and Georgia, is really grounded in an understanding that uh, we can't take voters of color for granted, but we also cannot take, we can't ignore what white voters are doing, how how strongly they're pushing a Trumpism and um, what's going to be done about that. So all of that needs to be put in its proper perspective when we look at uh, the evolving results for 2020. Right, which is exactly what this conversation is trying to do when I ask the question of how we deal with the issue of whiteness and that white voters did come out overwhelmingly. There was always this view that if more people voted, right, mm -hmm. that you would have more people who would end up repudiating potentially this president. And with more voting, we have a nail biter of a race at this point, though, of course, it's questionable how much of a nail biter it would have been if certain states had been allowed to cast their votes uh, or start counting their votes earlier than they did. Uh, but that said, it, it does raise questions about how, uh, if it is Biden and Harris, as it increasingly looks to be, how they will lead such a divided America. Marisa Lagos, you wanted to get in here. Oh, yeah. I mean, I wanted to say, I, I, I don't know if I made my point as articulately as I wanted to, which is that overwhelmingly the only two groups um, that we're seeing in, in um, you know, from what we understand of the data so far that voted for Trump uh, in a majority are white men and white women. And my point is that we don't talk, I don't, I don't think we talk about the white vote in the in the same sort of monolithic way that we try to cast the Latino vote, the Latinx vote, right? And and I think Amy makes an excellent point. I mean, I've been saying this the last two days, and I and I think it's so true. If the if the situation were reversed right now, Republicans would be elated, and I think Democrats, um, you know, I think some of it does have to do with the fact that for a lot of folks on the left, they wanted this to be, you know, the referendum on Trump and a repudiation of what you know, we've seen his racist comments, his, you know, immigration policy, all these things that for folks on on the left side of the spectrum are, are just horrific. And, and I think that there's the sense that because, you know, the Democratic majority in the House may shrink a little bit, that, that the Senate is up for grabs probably because of, you know, with these Georgia runoffs, um, that it's not as big of a win. Um, I think some of that's just like the, the kind of outlook of the parties and like how they tend to be. Um, but when we look at these numbers, you know, uh, 
some AP's uh, exit surveying showing 86% of black men voting for Biden, 59% of Latino men. I mean, those are still huge numbers. Um, but the question is, you know, I think that there were people who were just confused that anybody in those groups would vote for Trump. And I think that that's a bigger conversation that Democrats are having about, you know, the way they speak to different groups and the fact that, you know, yeah, Mexican-Americans in Arizona are you need to campaign there very differently than you might um, in a floor in a state like Florida. So that that was just my point. And I, and I do think that we in the media and, and within political campaigns um, have a really hard time kind of Wrapping our heads around the fact that, you know, we need to be a lot more nuanced within these growing minority groups, um, the same way that we have treated white voters for many years as not one big monolith who votes in a chunk. Well, this is Narasks. Please ask your guests whether they think the next four years under Biden would be any different than when Biden was the VP for eight years under Obama. McConnell will lead the same party of no. Amy Allison, I mean, what do you think about this in terms of the approach that a Biden-Harris administration would need to take, especially if we end up with a divided uh, Congress? Um, okay, so for, first, uh, we can still have the government, Democrats can still have a governing majority in the Senate. They can. So yes. uh, stay with me, stay with me, because we're not done counting in Georgia. We know we have two Senate races. We know Stacey Abrams and black women and women of color have have flipped uh, Georgia blue. We know it's possible to get those votes. So we have a runoff, two runoffs in January. If uh, the Democrats follow the lead of Stacey Abrams. It's possible that we could not we could get we could win two additional Senate seats out of Georgia and making it would be a 50 50 uh, uh, split in the Senate. Who would break that tie? Our vice president elect Kamala Harris. So that is a possibility. And I don't want us to just, you know, be, uh, um, you know, giving up uh, about that possibility uh, because I think it's very a very real path for us. But but the but uh, the question really brings up um, uh, governance. We have got to see a very strong and aggressive 100-day plan to directly address the pain that we're facing under COVID and the economic crisis. We want to see an, uh, uh, directly addressing the uh, the challenge to democracy that Trump represents, um, and uh, we have to have. Uh, a direct addressing of the rise of white nationalism, which we're seeing in the streets even right now. And those, the 100 days needs to be aggressive that way. Um, finally, I think when we look at the administration, the incoming administration needs to look like America, needs to look as diverse um, as our communities. And we're going to be pushing hard for that because we believe that we won't be able to effectively govern or have a governing agenda that will continue to inspire us and win additional elections uh, without that. Well, let me go to John in Foster City. Hi, John. Hi, good morning. And thank you all so much for this program. And um, based on President Trump's history with the truth, why are we shocked? And, and more important, why as a democratic society have we allowed politicians and this president to lie to America? We wouldn't allow our children or their teachers or our employees or people we do business with to lie to us every day. And if Donald Trump was selling baby food or children car seats and he perpetrated these type of lies, he'd be shut down in a minute because he'd be a clear danger to our society. And so my question is, really, 
how did politicians become this unique segment, this unique class of our society that can lie? And, and we actually pay for it with taxpayer dollars for him to get up in the White House and say things that we know are patently not just falsehoods, they're flat out lies. John, thanks, Marisa. We're coming up on a break, but do you want to quickly respond to John's point here? I mean, I, I think that we have seen the media, you know, all of us struggle and and try to change the way we cover this president. Um, we hadn't seen anything like it. I, I, I'm not going to say that John's not right, that other folks haven't lied. But let's, I mean, let's be clear, hundreds of millions of Americans voted for Trump. Um, it is a challenge. It is a challenge to do this, to call him out. I think we've gotten a lot better. I mean, yesterday during that just jaw-dropping news conference, NPR, and many other networks just cut away from the president because he was lying. And I think we're, uh, it's taken us four years, but we might be getting a little better at this. <laughs> Marisa Lagos, politics correspondent for KQED and co-host of KQED's Political Breakdown, Amy Allison, founder of She the People, an organizing, uh, organization that elevates the political voice of women of color, are with us as our guests. And so are you, our listeners. We're talking about what a Biden... Harris administration might look like in a deeply divided country about the ongoing vote count and how we got here and who to thank. 866-733-6786 is the number to call. Reach us on Twitter or Facebook at KQED Forum or email us at forum at kqed.org. More after the break. I'm Mina Kim. This is Forum. I'm Mina Kim. We're talking about the ongoing vote count, Biden's growing lead in the presidential election, and also the impact of voters of color and organizing on this election with Amy Allison, founder of She the People, and Marisa Lagos, politics correspondent for KQED. Jennifer writes, it seems that communicating with Trump supporters is like trying to reprogram people from a cult who is talking about using that method to heal the rifts in this country. Barbara in San Francisco is on the line. Barbara, join us. Hello. Uh, thank you for the excellent coverage for the first hour and this one. I want to call your attention, the attention of your listeners, to an article that's coming out in the November 9th uh, edition of The New Yorker, which explains a great deal. It's by Jane Meyer. Yes. It's called Gaming the Endgame. Uh, it, and this is directly from her text. If Trump loses the election, he'll face huge debts and possibly prison. Whatever happens, he'll put up a fight. And then there's a, a very vivid uh, illustration here, and under it it says, Few people have evaded consequences more cunningly than Trump. His luck may run out if Joe Biden defeats him. And I would say this would pump his, liar, his lies out even more vigorously because he's afraid for, as usual, himself. Barbara, thank you. Uh, I know the article that you're talking about. And also, I mean, what it gets to Marisa Lagos to some extent is why we're seeing what could be driving these scorched earth tactics right from the president, because consistently he he leads in his self-interest. But I think what she's also alluding to potentially is what we could see in these next two months if and, you know, if in fact he loses this election. Right. I mean, I think that, yeah, there's a couple of things to unpack there. I mean, of course. And then there's the question of how prosecutors, um, a Democratic House, I mean, everybody kind of reacts to Trump and, and, you know, a lot of, I think, the questions around accountability that a lot of Democrats would like, um, 
to be, you know, to, the Democrats to sort of dig into um, if indeed he is not in the White House. But yeah, I think there are open questions over what this transition period will look like, um, you know, both in terms of how Trump will act. Um, we've already seen some sort of extraordinary and unprecedented pardons and other, um, you know, meddling by his administration in, you know, court cases involving people who were in his administration and have been prosecuted. Um, and I think there's questions over whether just all the norms that he's blown up over the last four years, if that will continue. And I think, you know, the good money's on yes, that, you know, will he invite a a president-elect Joe Biden if indeed he wins to the White House? Um, Will he sort of hand over the reins of power in the way that we have seen it? Will he attend an inauguration if it's Biden? I mean, (laughs) I think there's a lot of questions. um, And some of those are are obviously less important when it comes to the sort of substance. But I think, you know, one of the things that we have really witnessed over the last four years is how much of our system is based on norms that we kind of took for granted prior to Trump. Um, And we're seeing this again with the rhetoric of folks like Lindsey Graham um, and others. And, and, And even I would say, you know, back to the beginning of our conversation, Mina, what we're seeing from some Republicans who are not willing to come out and say, you know, agree with Trump that there's widespread fraud, but are still saying things, including Mitch McConnell, the uh, Senate Majority Leader, like, Echoing this idea, well, the legal votes should be counted. Well, what what illegal votes are you talking about? This is all meant to sort of muddy the waters and I think sort of um, encourage his base to not accept the results of this election. And that is frightening because I think that that is one thing we have always done very well in this country is have a peaceful transition of power. And, you know, I can see a scenario, given this rhetoric, where, you know, come January, Biden is sworn in and and we do have a peaceful transfer of power, but we're still so divided and there's so much distrust of the system that is being sown directly by our president that it is not a good thing for our democratic system. And it it does raise, I think, bigger questions about how we're going to just move forward as a nation. Well, Anne writes, it's looking more and more like Biden will win. And I'm hearing so much negative talk, given all the many hurdles Democrats had to cross, like the GOP campaign of lies and the Fox bubble. This was a Democratic wave. At what point do people stop watching the train wreck of the Trump show and start paying attention to rebuilding our national government? And most of all, at what point do we start celebrating the first woman in the office of the vice president. Amy Allison, so much in Anne's comment there. I mean, first of all, there are many who say that, yes, this election would even be less close if you uh, took into consideration all of the voter suppression that took place and how to really look at the fact that 4 million more Americans are saying that they want a Joe Biden and a Kamala Harris, the first black and Asian American woman in the White House. Well, I can really appreciate the, the the comment. And not only was voter suppression active in the Georgia uh, early vote paper ballots were rejected two to one, uh, people of color uh, to, to white voters. So there was a lot of reasons, a uh, lot, of, lot of barriers that we are overcoming. And the time to celebrate is now. Uh, it is clear that our organizing and dedication of fighting against voter suppression have paid off. That, uh, you know, I, I remember a, a year ago saying, if you know women of color would would lead a, a broader coalition and we can win back uh, the White House, it's possible. Uh, we have uh, 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 black and Asian American uh, a woman in the White House. I mean, was, you know, Trump's career started with racist birtherism. It's going to end with a black and Asian woman in the White House. That is uh, so much uh, reason to celebrate, and we have to feel so good 
about what we've been able to accomplish. The, the, the country, millions of people were under Trump's spell, uh, but it is time for us to look forward. Uh, we, we did not recognize as a country how fragile our democracy was and how much of it was uh, based on ceremony and precedent and you know uh, custom. And we need to solidify and strengthen our democracy. I mean, a good start would be uh, passing uh, the the John Lewis uh, Voting Rights Act that's that's sitting there on McConnell's desk. We got to do it in order to to move forward. So you know, the short answer is uh, we're going to hear uh, most likely uh, from uh, Vice President Joe Biden, Kamala Harris today. Uh, it's it's time for us to think about governing. And when you think about the split in the nation, it isn't just about uh, Republican and Democrat. It is, it is we've got to deal with our racial divides. Uh, and that's been um, put into stark relief uh, with this election. That's the bigger and longer term work that needs to be done. But we need to celebrate this win today. Trisha in San Francisco. Hi, Trisha. Thanks for waiting. Hi, thank you so much. Um, I have, I have so many thoughts. I, I need to focus here a little bit. There's so many heroes right now. All these secretaries of state from, uh, that are Republican and Democrat, all the election workers, the law enforcement that are protecting them, the media folks who are carefully narrating the tally of these votes, uh, Stacey Abrams. There's so many heroes. I feel like I want to, Give a shout out to all of them. I also, I have some concern um, about this polarization, as everybody does, but the, the causes and conditions that created it. And I feel like it really needs to be uncovered and, and, and do a deep dive on whether there is a data-driven propaganda um, that's being used to polarize us, because it's almost like it's automatic, like someone's pressing a button. Trump says, only vote on election day. And then suddenly all these people just do exactly what he says. He claims there's fraud or whatever, and his crazy mobs go out and, you know, sort of uh, intimidate uh, the election workers. So I think we need to come down to the causes and conditions so we can be constructive, so we can unify. And I don't want to see black and white people looking at each other, pointing the finger and saying, you're the problem. That's the polarization. I want us to be coming together. We are all struggling. It's, you know, white people that are in upper middle class that are having to work month to month to pay their bills and don't know when the next month is coming are struggling like everybody else. So. I just want to be a shout out for unity and finding the causes and conditions so we can come together, be constructive, get rid of voter suppression, limit gerrymandering, you know, economic justice, COVID, criminal justice, and get on to the business of building and healing this country. Well, Trisha, it sounds like you were able to organize your thoughts and say a lot there. Appreciate it. I'm just going to leave it there just to try to get to more calls. We have so many coming in. Joseph in Portland, go right ahead. Hi, Joseph. Thanks for waiting as well. Hi, thank you. Um, I know we're talking about, you know, the soul of a nation and how this country is going to move forward. But what I've been thinking about is on a personal level, on a family level, on a friendship level, just how sad and disheartening and tragic this all has been. This president has slandered our democracy. He has made false statements that is damaging and threatening our democracy. And yet, I have family members who still support him. I'm not talking about the Lindsey Grahams and the, you know, the Republican 
senators who should be coming out against this. We're talking about people. And these aren't all, you know, um, you know, uh, machine gun, you know, backwoods, whatever you want to call these people. These are professional, educated people who are standing by this man still as he slanders our democracy. And the thing that's just so disheartening for me is I don't know how we're going to recover from this. Joseph- I don't know how families are going to get back together from this. I don't know how. I, I can feel some of the personal pain of this for you. I think also, Marisa, what Joseph is getting to is that Republicans, even if they lose this presidency, which they are poised to do, it is unlikely that they will not stop pursuing his Trump's style ideas. I mean, even Brad Parscale, I, you probably saw this tweet where he was like, if you want to run in 2024, better start saying something. I mean, the influence of Trump will be lasting in this party. Yeah, I mean, I I think we don't really know yet what it's going to look like without him in the White House. Um, you know, it, it, it's it what what he'll do next, how much I mean, look, I still think that there are going to be some Republicans who do distance themselves from Trump. But, you know, I think what we're hearing is what we've alluded to this whole hour, which is this sort of sense on the left that even if Biden does pull this out, that they're just so disappointed that so many of their fellow Americans would support the policies and and the rhetoric of this president. I mean, I do think we need to look at this through a couple lenses. I mean, there are people, people vote for candidates for a variety of reasons. I mean, one of the groups that we've seen demographically kind of increase their share of of the Trump uh, vote was folks making over $100,000 a year, which probably is an economic uh, consideration for them. We haven't even mentioned the disinformation and misinformation um, that has really been rampant on social media, in particular Facebook. Uh, the QAnon theories are obviously the most extreme of this, and I, and I think the amount of traction they've gotten is frightening. But I think there's a lot of other misinformation and disinformation that's really taken hold. And so I do think as a democracy, we have a lot of questions that we need to confront. Um, and we can disagree on policy and still still want every vote to be counted and not to disenfranchise people people. And I got to say, as a journalist, like that has been one of the most disappointing parts of this election cycle is watching as the Republican Party really takes on this mantle, um, this argument that that, you know, as almost, you know, that there should be a debate over whether people get to cast votes. And we know that that is the fundamental of our democracy. And I think that that's something, you know, but, you know, back to, I think, Amy Allison's hopeful point, we've seen um, real work against that in places like Georgia. And we've seen real changes. And even though this race is so close, um, it is the highest turnout we've ever seen. So the good news with all that bad news mean is that people are paying attention and yeah. I think that that you know we can't we can't sort of lose sight of that. Maybe I, I just wanted to yeah I was going to add you know uh, I, this this morning Roxanne Gay in the New York Times said it said it best she said this is America this is not an aberration it's our country it's who the we are it's the way this election's played out it should not be a surprise if you've been paying attention or you understand systemic racism. Um, and I think, as you know, there's a lot of us, a lot of people who did not make it through the Trump years, died of COVID and didn't have to, and uh, victims of police violence. And listen, uh, taken children taken away uh, at the borders. Um, we have to stay strong, though, and stay grounded in, in, in our values. We've watched over the last 72 hours since the election, 
protesters and the president himself from the Oval Office saying, stop the count. Stop the very thing that's the foundation of our democracy, of, of our identity and as Americans. So we need to redefine that. We need to address uh, racism. It's, it's fundamental in what is happening in this country in our politics. So the heartbreak I felt from um, uh, the caller is the same heartbreak I have. I have people in my family uh, who voted for Trump uh, and uh, voted for him the first time and the second time. And I, I think uh, this is a great reckoning for us to uh, figure out how we're going to um, build bridges across race, not in a way that gives people a pass, not in a way that justifies undemocratic authoritarian um, calls for the end of democracy or continuation of racism, but something new. And um, uh, the questions that people are asking, the heartbreak is actually an opportunity for us to have those kind of questions amongst ourselves as we move forward. Amy Allison of She the People. We're also talking with Marisa Lagos, politics correspondent for KQED. You're listening to Forum. I'm Mina Kim. I'm just going to read a few more comments that are coming in here just to give you a sense of how people are reacting. Jorge writes, Joe Biden owes his victory to the Mexican-American vote in five states, California, Nevada, Arizona, New Mexico, and Colorado. How will Biden respond as president to Mexican-American issues, including the millions of undocumented workers and in selections for his cabinet? This listener tweets, even if Trump does lose, what does it say about the American electorate that 70 million people are voting for him? What kind of precedent does Trump's repeated breaking of democratic norms create for future potential autocrats. And this listener writes, I think folks should avoid the trap of negativity around Trump's fall from grace. It can be a bottomless pit. Likewise, if we accentuate the positive, it will have a healing effect and we sorely need healing now. Let me go to Sandra. Hi, Sandra. Hi. Um, I've had the post-election cliche of um, reuniting this country and doing our best to heal and forgive uh, in my head preemptively. And I just can't get on board with that right now because as Marisa put it, that jaw-dropping press conference by our president, it's just, I, the, the assault on democracy is something that even in this administration, I was not expecting. And the complicitness from the GOP, so many of whom complete, uh, say that they are constitutional originalists, it's just kind of hard to get my mind around and I can't get on board with you feel like dirty race. Sandra, you're, you're breaking up, but I, I think you've described where you're at well. And Amy Allison, we just have a little time left with you. I wonder... I mean, you strike me as somebody who keeps fighting. <laughs> what do you, what can you say to Sandra? I have been working um, with the most incredible women of color in places, not like the Bay Area, but uh, really, really hard places to organize with um, voter suppression and outright attacks. And I have been buoyed by um, the ability to build connections, to organize, and to stand for something beautiful. And um, all I have to do is look at the historic numbers of women of color, the most maligned 
and least represented group in this democracy, the historic numbers of women who ran up and down ballot and who are and our squad going back in and, and even being bigger with people like Black Lives Matter, ad, ad, advocate and nurse and pa- pastor Corey Bush out of Missouri. Like we have this incredible opportunity to tap talent and to continue to organize. Amy Allison, founder of She the People, thanks so much for joining us today. Marisa Lagos, politics correspondent and co-host of KQED's Political Breakdown Show. Thanks to you as well. Thanks to Ariana Prail for producing today's segment. And Forum is also produced by Judy Campbell, Susan Britton, Tina Lauerberg, Blanca Torres. Our senior editor is Dan Zoll. Our engineers are Danny Bringer and Katie McMurrin. And our intern is Jamison Weiss. I'm Mina Kim. Have a good weekend. Funds for the production of Forum are provided by the members of KQED Public Radio and the Germanicos Foundation and the Generosity Foundation.